Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Do I Still Love It? The podcast that knows how many licks it takes to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop. Three. I'm Marshall James. And I'm Laura Weiss. And every week, uh, we have a guest over to rewatch a movie that they loved when they were kids to see whether or not they still love it now that they're adults. And the kid grown up into an adult that we have this week is actress, writer, and theater producer, and general Jill of all trades, Joanne Hartstone. Hey. Hello, Joanne. Hello. How you going? Good, good, good. I'm so glad that you are joining us today, because you are going to be... Uh, fulfilling one of my dreams on this show that I didn't actually know I was going to be able to fulfill, which is returning to the world of Mickey and Judy. That is, for for the many of you that don't know what I'm talking about, that is the world of Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, the most shippable teens of the 30s and 40s, in my humble opinion. I'm glad to be here then, because they really meant a lot to me. All of the Judy Garland stuff meant a lot to me growing up. So to meet somebody else who was like, oh, yeah, let's revisit that. That's really cool. So I'm excited. Oh, yeah. No, it was a super synergy. <laughs> um, so why don't you uh, jump in? And I'm sure we'll just gab about this for a few minutes. Uh-huh. Why don't you jump in as, as, a young, as a young Joanne Hartstone, which is the most perfect name. You, you should have just been a 1940s <laughs> actress, which we'll get to in a little bit. But um, what did young little Joe get from Judy? Um, magic, I think I got from her most, and and spirit. Um, her voice was effortless, even for a young woman, and I think I idealised her in a way that I wanted to be and perform sort of carefree and fierce and thoughtful. And so I think I identified with her a lot. I mean, you know, she's Dorothy. She's iconic, you know. Um, And all of that era really fascinated me because the whole thing just seems so far away from where I was right now. You know, it was a total fantasy, a total escape because it was in the past. Yes, yes. You could say it was somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so I just imagine yeah. you pining after this Technicolor world from your like black and white <laughs> small town Adelaide, <laughs> Australia. Yeah. No, and I I very much echo mm. what you what you're saying about um it felt it felt so close to to the world that I that mm. I could touch, yeah. but yet so far away because there was this, there was this innocence yeah. yet intense drama. Yeah, exactly. That existed was, coincided mm. between um, between in this whole series of films. Um, one thing that if if you are a person that hasn't spent too much time watching uh, films of the '40s, this was back in the time when all of the big studios just were machines. Yeah, it was the studio system. They were churning out exactly. films every week and because that's how they made their money by producing new content to send out to the theaters across America. So it really was a factory, you it know. It was completely a factory. Get it and, out, get it out. And this was back when every single actor or actress was employed by a single studio. Yeah. And um so these these couplings, such as Mickey and Judy, once they found that the synergy worked, mm. they basically just attached them to each other and did as many products as possible mm. of it. So there were actually four movies 
Um, on top of the Andy Hardy films, which mm-hmm. were the original uh, Mickey Judy pairing, yeah, um, there were these four movies that came out, and it was Babes in Arms, Strike Up the Band, Girl Crazy, and then there's another one whose name I was falling out of my head. Babes on Broadway. Babes on Broadway. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, someone did his research before the recording. <laughs> and to be and to be brutally honest, they all have pretty much the exact same plot. Yeah, I think they do. That's why I'm not really clear <laughs> from my childhood <laughs> yeah. about what we're about to see because all of them kind of blend somewhat. I think I think for me, Judy Garland's later work uh, and then the hist- the whole the whole bulk of her mm-hmm. um, of her film work is really resonant for me as as a woman but her chi- child stuff you know the young stuff it's so like nostalgic isn't it yeah so mm-hmm. so you said that uh the these four movies have very interchangeable plots so assuming mm. like let's treat this then like how we somewhat treat television shows in this briefly what's what are the major plot points of a mickey judy movie uh kind of ragamuffin boy and girl mm-hmm get together with their ragamuffin friends, and for some reason that's important, for some reason that's going to change their lives or the lives of people around them, they have to get together and put on a show. Mm-hmm. Like a Broadway show. Mm, not no. necessarily, although it's Broadway quality. Yeah, but in, it's more like a summer stock show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A show in their town. Uh-huh. And I believe Babes in Arms and Babes on Broadway were kind of... And it's been a long time, so I'm not necessarily going to remember very well. But I think Babes on Broadway was when the show that they put together in Babes in Arms got... Like, they get to go to Broadway. So the first one's oh, like a like summer It's a proper stop. sequel. Mm-hmm. It's a proper sequel. But are these movies sequels to each not other? Really. No. Th- those they're two more, kind of are. They're more kind of, you know, formulaic, I guess. Yeah. They're more, it, it, I feel like they're because concurrent they, realities. Well, and don't forget yeah. why. It's because they had to churn them out so quickly. Yeah. So they knew they knew what was going to work. Mm-hmm. And this was a formula that got people buying tickets and it was feel good. I mean, a lot of story arcs are very similar, of course. There's the hero. There's, in this day, in this era, of course, the hero and the heroine. And for some reason, it was always Mickey, Mickey's story rather than Judy's story. Mm-hmm. Although, no, not... I mean, she was so watchable, wasn't she, yeah. that you couldn't help but... I couldn't help but follow her, but maybe that's because I identified with her. Yeah, me too. But you'd say this is... Because I, I... Okay, so I've never seen, as far as I can recall, a Mickey and Judy movie. So this will be a new... with like, Obviously, I've seen, you know, the the most famous of Judy Garland's works like uh, Wizard of Oz, which I look forward to one day doing that because I realized... I don't know if I've seen that since becoming an adult. Well, we'll TV. do it someday. And we would have done it this time, except for the fact that Joanne has recently gone through a large portion of Judy Garland's uh, work because... Her back catalog, yeah. Her back catalog, <laughs> which, is, which means that a lot of the Judy movies are not... You can't do them on the show. I... So yeah, I can't. Why? This is, why this, this was you actually going through so many Judy movies in the last couple of years? Yeah, this was the only one that I could be yeah. like, yeah, I didn't I didn't. And I was one. pumped because this one was my favorite <laughs> Mickey and Judy movie. Yeah, so, I haven't seen it since I was 16. So... But, what have you been doing that has made you watch so many Judy movies as an adult? I wrote a play, and I wrote a play called The Girl Who Jumped Off the Hollywood Sign. And it was, it is inspired by the golden age of Hollywood, of which Judy Garland is a huge, uh, huge wedge of, mm-hmm. of, of that <laughs> iconic time. No, 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 she's a wedge. Well, for me, anyway. A pillar, yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, in order to research my play and get it right, you know, it's fan fiction. You know, you you really want to embrace the era as much as possible. I just researched and watched, rewatched all of the 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 stuff to make it. make sure it was how I remembered it and then created uh, my character who's a fly on the wall throughout the golden age of Hollywood, um, witnessing all of the events surrounding the movies that was pro- that were processed from the time. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like watching the propaganda and then knowing the backstories behind the film, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. The film being the propaganda, the Hollywood propaganda. Um so yeah, so I've I've done so much research and it's been a real labor of love because oh, it's just so I'm going to say it again, nostalgic. Yeah, which is me. great. I mean, nostalgia is the name of the game around these parts. Yeah. So, yeah. I still love it. Given all of your research on uh-huh. Judy, do you think you'll still love Strike Up the Band? Yes. Although here's the thing I'm worried about. <laughs> I'll yes, tell you yes, before. Yes. yes. I'm worried that because of all of the research that I've done and knowing what happened to this incredible young girl and how much she sacrificed to give us this joy, that there's going to be a tinge of sadness, you know, knowing the relationship that she had with the director and, you know, at the time and how much Judy worked. I'm worried it's going gonna, it's gonna to make me think about that rather than the magic of the movie. Yeah, it's hard with the Bubsy, with the Busby Berkeley movies because he was he was a monster. He was a he was like a he was like a mad genius mm. that saw humans as props. But I uh, I agree with you that I I think as an adult as as a person that can look back on a kid mm. it might be interesting to see that. Um I just have a a little personal question. Mm. Of all the movies you watched of Judy, because this is indulgent of me, okay. I admit, what was your favorite one to watch as an adult? It's Meet Me in St. Louis. Oh, yeah. Okay. That, it's my favorite movie of all time. Oh, really? I, yeah. And I think it's it's a perfect film. Um, and it is beautiful. You know, it's such a sweet story. There's no... There's very there's drama in it, but there's no violence. There's love, and it's and it's wonderful. Wonderful. It's very warm. female-centric. Oh and- yes, it ticks all the boxes for me. And Judy is spectacular, mm-hmm. and she's oh, her voice and the songs. Oh, you know, it, it just carries me away. So fun fact. Uh huh. Meet me in St. Louis was my first taste of rejection. Why? At ten years old. I was up for the kids' role. There's like a young girl's role, and yeah. it's like mostly teenagers of the Tootie. young girl. Judy, yeah. I was, I was me and another girl up for that role as as fifth graders uh-huh. in the high school production. Uh huh. And they picked the other girl, <gasps> and I was convinced they would choose me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was my my first real taste of rejection. Oh, Tootie's yeah. a lovely character yeah, as well. Yeah. It would have been a good fifth grade, meaty fifth grade experience. But <laughs> yeah. Never had it. Well, won't you uh, join us in reminiscing about things you almost got in fifth grade? Uh, while uh, me, Laura, and Joe will watch 1940s Strike Up the Band. And we'll all give a cheer as we stand To the man with the stick in his hand He's the man whose command of the band Makes the band, band. You can't go wrong with a happy song 
All right, we're back. And that was <laughs> Strike Up the Band. Um, and Classic Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. Yeah, like, uh, whoa. <laughs> so, so Marshall, so having... do you still love it? <laughs> yeah, we, well, we, we will get to that at the end. Gotta, gotta let that one slow burn. But, uh, so, Marshall... You've never seen a Mickey and Judy I, movie. I've never seen a Mickey and Judy movie. You if didn't I, even... I, you were surprised when it was in black and white. Yeah. And I mean, so I guess I'm, I, like, yeah. fascinated to have this conversation with two people that kind of ingested this, this like, older movie musical world a lot as kids with mm-hmm. somebody that's completely... I feel no, like I understand a lot more about Laura's nascent ideas <laughs> on romance. <laughs> like, Actually, to be honest, this is where a lot of the brainwashing starts. Oh, absolutely. Isn't it? So um, I think it's really important to say um, this movie, these movies for me were really important between the ages of like 13 and 15 before I'd ever even kissed a boy. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit of a late bloomer in the boy category, mm-hmm. but I was hella boy crazy. And so um, this whole movie, just to kind of get into the, just to get into the plot a little bit, um, so Mickey Rooney is the main character and he's, you know, jet setting with his art and she's kind of, Judy Garland's kind of like following along being like, notice me, notice me. And, you know, he's constantly like, not really getting it. And she's constantly frustrated. Right, yeah. And that was my idea of how interacting with boys was. Oh, okay. Because I had never actually gotten a boy to like me. Mm-hmm. And so I felt a lot of safety in these characters. Like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. Like, This, this is just what happens. This is just what happens. You, you never recognize yourself can. in the struggle. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Because I realized that I grew out of these movies right around the time that I actually started having boy interactions. Mm-hmm. I realize Ooh, now. boy interactions. Boy interactions. They're going to be playing at the Troubadour later this That's week. That's right, they are. <laughs> uh... Yeah, it was really weird. Like, I have written down so many notes of, how can he be so dense? Mm. She is so obviously, like, like stupid Crushing face in love mm. and, with him, yeah. And she is so many, like, leagues above him, like, on the on the cute scale. Like, he's kind of a frog face. <laughs> I was so in love with him. <laughs> I mean, he had all of the elements of being that classic clean cut but slightly, you know, zany, yeah. you know, all-American boy. He was the small-town goofball. Yeah. The talented small-town goofball. Right, but I feel like every boy imagines himself as this talented small-town uh, goofball, but, like, Judy Garland in this movie is the most idealized girl-next-door oh, hometown yeah. sweetheart. Well, all the all the female characters are very stock standard. I mean, to that extent, a lot of the male characters are stock standard. You know, if you have a look at the traditional roles in in melodrama, we kind of have them all here, here. We've got the hero and the heroine. We've got the villain and his sidekick. We've got the comedy relief. We've got the parental figures of authority and morality. You know, kicking in, keeping everybody, you know, uh, going. So it's 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 interesting to see once again now that I've seen it, how formulaic it is. Mm-hmm. And there's really not a lot of substance to any of these characters. I think not a lot is a... You're giving it a lot. You're, you're really, <laughs> Not a lot of substance is uh, really giving them a lot to chew on because... But particu- yeah. Well, particularly, though, what, to go back to what you were saying, a lot of the female characters are savagely 
stereotyped. I think oh, yeah. more so yeah. than, given even less room than the male characters. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, this like, movie does not give much to female characters at, at all. all. Yeah. No, no, because your only female character is the girl next door, the hot, popular, rich girl, yeah. and the mom. The hot, popular, rich girl with at least four accents. I couldn't. <laughs> I kept. I couldn't. She's I couldn't very tell. worldly. I couldn't tell. Yeah, like is is she supposed to be a phony, and that's the reason her accent keeps moving around, or is the actress not a very good? No. I thought it was because she was phony. You know, she's playing sort of the roles of <laughs> of the time that I'm so foreign, don't you know? You know, uh-huh. and then and uh, you know, and then going into like the I can be your best friend, and I'm so innocent and wide eyed, and so I think mm. that she affected voice for character comedic purposes or character explanation. Right. Yeah, no, and I think as a character, so we're talking about this uh, this kind of, you know... Barbara r- Francis. Barbara, Barbara Francis, Francis, who rolls in, and she's perfect, and she's blonde, and she's super rich, and her super dad perky. is... Her dad is a railroad mogul. Magnate. Yeah. <laughs> and, um... And, yeah, it, she's just talking about going to France and Florence. She asks and, him at one point, Jimmy, have you ever been to the continent? And as when she said it, I had enough time to think, ooh, what continent is <laughs> the continent? And then he's like, uh, I've been to Chicago. And she goes, you simply must see Florence and Vienna and Paris. And I'm like, oh, the continent is Europe. Whoa. <laughs> and that, like, just kind of is the tip of the... Oh yeah, there is only white people in this movie, uh-huh. and that holds true for all two hours and two minutes. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Which which will uh, segue us very very quickly into where is anyone that's not any white? minority at all? There was one. I I even grossed out to say this. Like there was one minority in this film. I eagle eye caught it because you never actually saw him face on mm. but he was the servant oh. in the rich people's household of and course. he was asian yeah mm. and that was the only non-white person in this film mm. two hours <laughs> so uh, speaking of like in this fancy house one of the things that really struck me about this movie is is like you mentioned there's there's like a plot but the plot is more like the story arc of a season of a television show. Like, the kids are slowly working to it, but that's really not what... There's individual episodes with their own plots, with the overarching plot of, like, one of these days we're going to be our own band, you betcha! And <laughs> and so... <laughs> you betcha! And so one of the first musical numbers happens when Jimmy imagines himself conducting a band and... <laughs> To demonstrate this, he takes a hold of a very full fruit bowl in Judy Garland's house and lays all the fruit out as if they are instrument players. And then suddenly, he and her both have a hallucinogenic episode (laughs) where they picture little fruit people playing fruit instruments, including where pear people are playing chopped in half pears Violins. There was also a nut man that was playing a nutcracker as a harp. His own, the, the implement of his own demise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, I love that scene. So, so that scene, the second that we get into the room and there is this just crazy fruit collection. Including which, three pineapples. I am sorry. I don't know how big your family is, but that, that shit is gonna go rotten real quick. Mm-hmm. So they just like, this, the second that I see it, this little door in the corner of my mind opens up and I was like, 
The fruit people. <laughs> oh my god. The fruit people. Please tell me this is real. So I spent, because this movie takes forever to get to the point. Mm-hmm. Every single scene. And so I spend literally five minutes with them talking around this fruit thing, being like, am I making up the fruit band? Am I making up these fruit people? And then it, it, it like flips in and I'm like, nope, hallucinogenic fruit experience actually happened. Actual memory. Ooh, hallucinogenic fruit experience. Definitely playing at the Troubadour later this week. Yeah, absolutely. I think I saw them last weekend. <laughs> well, this play plays into the magical realism of the film, doesn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and every, loads of films at the time used this idea that, that the lens could construct a bigger world and make things possible that real life couldn't happen. You know, yeah, and then suddenly... I mean, that was the yeah. beauty of the art form. Yeah, and you you suddenly really? move move away from kind of a domestic scene to a huge soundstage. Yes. And as a kid, I really enjoyed that. Well, that's magical, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And as an adult... <laughs> Get to the point. Jesus, I had <laughs> that's no... That's so not possible. <laughs> I had yeah, yeah, yeah. no, like, attention span for the long, drawn-out soundstage sections of this. Yeah. Because there are full-on... There are full-on, like, six, seven, eight-minute-long soundstage musical numbers Mm -hmm. filled with magical realism. There's about six or seven of them throughout the movie. And and every time, like, they have a verse and a chorus and a verse and an instrumental bridge during Mm -hmm. which dance numbers happen, and then they come back for a resounding crescendo chorus one more time. And then... And then there's still an outro to have to do from that. Mm. So each musical number is a good 10-minute chunk of the movie. Yeah, and this is before... This is the oldest movie that we've done. And this is prior to the point when musicals started to have an actual through-line plot. Mm. This is back when musicals still really were song and dance intermixed with little vignettes. Well, this is actually a lot lot like my play. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I've... what they used to do at the time is they used to just get sort of a catalogue of songs that they wanted to to sell, mm-hmm. basically, and then find a plot thread th- to weave them all in. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So you kind of get the sense that, like, why this song at this particular moment? It doesn't, you know. Yeah. Wh- because why? somebody wrote the song and somebody bought the song and somebody's got to push the song in somewhere. And, yeah, so it's just yeah, So, it's so what you're strange. telling me is that your show has entire massive soundstage numbers? <laughs> 200 people all of a sudden, which is very impressive in a one-woman show in a black box theater, let me tell you. Everyone's just going to have to come along and see it, aren't exactly. they? Exactly. <laughs> put it all in your head. So wait, my question is, so then, so early in the movie, uh, Mickey and Judy sing a duet uh, of love affair, my love affair, during which like Judy could not be more obvious about how like she's got the hots for Mickey. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at the time, would that have been an established song that the people at home would have like? Very gone, oh, yes. yes. Gotcha. So this is sort of like in like an episode of Glee, where suddenly yeah, the yeah, cheerleaders I mean, have yeah. a reason to sing a Michael Jackson song. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. And in a way, like this is the. Like, this movie is like watching, we're watching six episodes of Saved by the Bell, or six episodes of Glee, or six mm-hmm. episodes. Yeah, we're watching six episodes of 1940s Glee. Yeah. <laughs> so if you like Glee, mm-hmm. and, you, and you don't mind an entirely white cast <laughs> with rampant misogyny, <laughs> check out, check it out. So speaking of, uh, speaking of misogyny, so I feel like we gotta- well, That old chestnut. <laughs> so we gotta segue into the fact that, okay, so at one point in the movie- Mickey is trying to explain to his mom, who's who's a widow, that uh, 
I know my dad was a doctor, and he wanted me to be a doctor too, but I just gotta be a drummer. I just gotta leave a, lead a band. And his mom says, you know, Jimmy, we always really wanted, you know, a happy life as a doctor for you. That's why we prayed for you to be a boy. And... <laughs> It was one of the moments where, like, this movie goes, uh, you are in the 1940s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's um, interesting yeah. Look, looking back nostalgically, I suppose, at these at these movies with our current, you know, modern eyes, our enlightened eyes, where we realise that the, the ways that you, men and women used to be defined now no, no longer relevant, and yet... If you go back to this time period, can you see how for some people it's been normalized? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because if that was their influence and they were told that this was morally correct and just and, you know, this was the way to look at the world and women should be in this place and men should be in this place and this is how you define it and this is what is American and this is what is good. Mm -hmm. And now we're a generation or two later beyond this point and that morality has been fed through. So now no wonder that there's this dichotomy because that was thought of as being correct. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it, it was it, it it's was a the, huge responsibility it was the on the mainstream. Yeah. And this is and this was not an, an isolated incident. This was the norm back then. Yeah. Yeah. So it's I think that Hollywood has a huge response well oh, sorry yeah. the golden age of Hollywood has a huge responsibility on uh, on the status and position of minorities and women in oh, 100%. the world. It's, it's interesting because yeah, like you're saying here, this is this is a situation where this entire movie, the uh, the like kind of dominance of men and the avenues of opportunity for men are like really highlighted all over mm-hmm. the place. And it's funny because like we now live in a time when Hollywood is having to like struggle with the fact that there's this view from a lot of people in Hollywood that like, you know, that women don't sell movie tickets mm. and that women don't, you know, like this whole idea that like certain action movies just can't be led by a woman because people aren't just going to people aren't going to go see these movies. Mm-hmm. Right. Despite the fact that we have movies all the time with with female lead actors like Mad Max Fury Road or uh, Edge of Tomorrow, which were, were like mm-hmm. hardcore guy action movies with female leads or female co-leads. Mm. And, uh, but it's interesting, like, Hollywood's like, well, I don't know, like, do we reflect the times or reflect the, is art a reflection of life or, Mm. you know? And it's this thing where, like, well, uh, Hollywood is here obviously responsible for, in part, propagating all these ideas about gender roles. A lot of it was, I think, propaganda. um, In in order to sell the vision of what America should look like. You know, so we were talking about, like, there's, like, six or so episodes in this thing. And each episode has a big musical number. And one of the early music no- musical numbers, the so the overarching plot of the whole movie is sort of set up right around now, which is that there's a, a big band leader, Paul Whiteman, Paul Whiteman, Paul Whiteman, <laughs> who is playing I just him- who is that. playing himself. So Paul Whiteman, who's a who's a apparently a real famous radio yep. guy, mm-hmm. is playing himself in this movie. Band leader. Mm-hmm. Band leader. So this is like a movie. Uh, this would be a movie where like Prince is in it playing Prince, you know, like mm-hmm. and they're having to go like, oh man, we got to prove ourselves to Prince, you know, yes. like that sort of thing. Um, and uh, so. Jimmy and his band and his girl that he can't possibly see realize is really in love with him decide that they're going to have to like put on a benefit show to earn the money to go to Chicago to then perform for white man. 
<laughs> and so they decide to put on this crazy, like, insane, Such bonkers yeah. melodrama. Which was my favorite part of this movie. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. It's this snidely whiplash and... It's Dudley Do-Right and Snidely Whiplash and all of the tying Nell to the train tracks and all of that stuff Um, with the most insane (laughs) production values ever. This musical number has 10 set changes with moving set pieces like there's there's a train that comes by and it has steam coming out of it. But like, okay, so in the defense of the train... You know, like the very, the climactic party's trying to get her off the train, and the train comes in, and the train visibly comes in way too early, like it's actually going to run her over on a treadmill on a stage. At the Elks Lodge. At the Elks it's Lodge. Not the, it's not in the theater. Riverwood it, somewhere. It's not America. the Riverwood Opera House or, or the yeah, Riverwood yeah, yeah. Playhouse that could have it. It's just the Elks Lodge. It's just a, it's just a non-nudity gentleman's club. But 20 minutes in, like at the very, very, very climax of this perfect, absolutely stellar production where there was not a single difficult issue. The train comes in too early and Mickey Rooney hadn't gotten Judy up yet and he waves the train off and the actors in the train pull the train back, they get her undone and then the train goes through and then everything is saved. And I loved that moment because it was this like multi-layer meta moment where they're like, oh no, we messed up the climax of the show, guys. We're just gonna have to go forward with the show. And it was the only, (laughs) the literal only problem that they created in the show. They were like, in the last 15 seconds, we we got a show that we're a bunch of kids making this multi-million dollar production. Yeah. It was, the production values were just so incredible. And this is what made it so unbelievable. Yeah. That they needed to raise something like $200 to get to Chicago. Right. They right. only now, raised now, 150 They did only raise 150 but... They must I mean, have spent 1000 At least. I would have watched that full production. Yeah. That was the best did. part of this Could you imagine seeing that, that production live? That would be amazing. That would be amazing. I wish we had seen the audience. I wish they had just shit their pants. Like, they were just <laughs> so blown away. Like, I thought we were going to watch some two-bit 16-year-olds entertaining us with their follies because they came up with the show a week ago. Yeah. Oh, man. And a week ago. And the show includes such themes as suicide in front of children, alcoholism, child abuse, infanticide. (laughs) Also, dead children that you murdered with your own hands coming back from the dead to save you from being run over by a train. Yes, so he... He, in a drunk stupor, slaps his son. His son then dies. Suddenly it's a halo around his head, gets pulled up into the rafters as an, as an angel. And then in the next, in a couple scenes, he is tied to a sawmill, tied to like a, a big tree trunk on a sawmill about to get sawed in half. And his son comes down from the heavens with the angel thing. And he's just like, I'll save you, dad. And he like undoes his father who killed him. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, I forgive you, Dad, from beyond the grave. Now, I really I really want to take this moment to um, give some props to that the kid that played the son slash angel. Willie. Willie. Willie, who was uh, one of the secondary characters throughout this little little uh, shindig we call a movie. Um, Willie was the best character. I'm pretty sure he's going to turn into a serial killer uh, later on in his life. I'm pretty sure he turned out to be the Zodiac Killer. (laughs) So Um, so Willie is established as being... Let's talk about Willie for a second. Because he's established as being 13 years old. Yes. And 
we never find out how old Mickey and Judy are supposed to be. Uh, Although well, Mickey no. just graduated Mickey just from... just graduated, yeah. So, so we, are we to assume that Mickey, Judy, Barbara Francis, they're all 18, and that Willie is 13 and just hanging out with them, and it's then proposes marriage to point, Judy Garland? It's, it's interesting and difficult, because I don't remember if 16 or 17 might have been the graduation age at that time. Um, because this is far enough back that that might have... That might have been the case. But Any I'm not research? Completely certain. Um, well, I think in this in this thing, they're supposed to be either sixteen or seventeen. Hmm. I think they're still protected under their parents, you know. So in terms of of where they are and uh, and that, and they're still at high school. So I think they're probably. I would say that they're seventeen. Yeah. So and and speaking of birthdays. The next big musical number is the birthday party for Barbara Francis at the country club that her locomotive magnate father owns, or at least is a member of. And uh, she's like, oh my gosh, we could totally get the last $50 that we still need after that insane production we put on at the Elks Lodge. For only $150. For only $150. We can get the other $50 from my dad. I'll have him hire you as the band at my birthday. Turns out, no dice, because Dad has already hired Paul fucking white man. So the guy they've been looking for is going to be here in Riverwood. Whoa. Fast forward to being at this party, and suddenly the Paul Whiteman band decides to take a break. And this whole crew of uh, Jimmy's band just gets on stage and starts playing music blowing their own mouths without consent into the instruments of Paul Whiteman's band. <laughs> and Paul Whiteman's band comes back in. They're like, oh, looks like somebody took over for us while we were on break. They sound pretty good. No one's angry. No one thinks anything's wrong with this. Everyone has a good time. That's like not a good message. Well, but it was so part of the innocence of the era, wasn't it? So part of the innocence you of know? white people. Oh, I mean, this whole film is white privilege, isn't it? <laughs> you know, what's the worst thing that happens uh, to not, them, you this know? This isn't even just about white privilege. This is about white, privi- white privilege inside of its own cocoon. So, yeah, and this is the crazy thing that I can't, that I kept thinking about while I was watching this movie because there is a lot of jingoism and patriotism mm-hmm. and like America's the best. Where it ends with the American flag. Out, you know. of out of nowhere. Out of nowhere they fly the American flag, salute it and then there's a double image yeah. of the flag and Mickey and Judy. Yeah, their like, faces like super Nothing imposed. is more American than this couple. Yeah. And I kept thinking the whole time that okay, so this movie is probably shot in 1939 Released in 1940. And I was like, at this time, like, World War II is full-on engulfing Europe. Well, it was very interesting to uh, research what Hollywood did during the war. I think what was happening in Hollywood before this was a big kind of, we're not going to acknowledge anything bad going on in the world. Right, right, you know, right. I think this is, a, this is part of the bubble. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. The problem with the bubble, the propaganda bubble. Anytime that um, there is you know, domestic strife going on, especially in America, you see that a lot of the stuff that they put out is fluff, mm. you know? Because when you're when you're stressed, when you're anxious, you you just want to watch something that makes you feel Escapism. good. Escapism. Exactly. Yeah, this is like, like the Mickey and Judy movies were the most escapist-y, like, innocent, innocent and fun-ish, I guess. Maybe they were fun once. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought they were fun once. <laughs> Well, I mean, they are fun. Yeah. They're enjoyable. You know, even though the musical acts were 
ridiculous and unbelievable. And They're way also, too long. And way too long. I mean, particularly now for our attention yeah. spans. Uh, and I definitely, definitely would have turned off that YouTube video if it had shown up to me on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. you would have pressed skip by now. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, but I think they, they were beautiful, you know. The reason I got into these films was because my grandmother showed me Singing in the Rain when I was, you know, mm-hmm. like three years old or whatever, and suddenly, mm-hmm. like, I was just devouring... musicals and because they were happy Mm -hmm. and lovely and safe and find a show to a three-year-old obviously you know and yeah yeah and uh, i think safe is a word that you you just fell upon mm. that i think is very very true um this is a very safe kind of escapism it's Mm. not uh it's not a scandalous escapism. It's not something no, that makes wholesome. you feel debaucherous in any way or, like, mm. freeing in any way. It's something that really makes you go home to apple pie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the simplicity of, the simplicity of you know, small-town America. Yes. Um, which is, like, it's what I grew up in. And the only thing that, just from a personal standpoint, I'm just kind of, like, figuring out why was this so important to me in that one short period of my life? Because I didn't share this with anyone. This didn't come to me from anyone. This came to me because I had Turner Classic Movies. Mm -hmm. And I fell upon it. And Mm -hmm. I was just like, ah, this is doing something for me. I think it was the combination of this, this, like, small-town reality that they had created with it being so amassed around the only like plot thickener is will they or won't they achieve their dream of being artists and like that's all i want i just wanted that to be the plot thickener of my life at 13 years old Mm -hmm. and so i was able to lose myself very specifically into this reality um and into this non-reality is a much much better way to put it um yeah but it's really interesting to watch as an adult because you can see you can see so many layers of this that are Icky, you it, know, uh-huh. that are you, it's so much easier to tune out when you're well, like younger. So, yeah, that brings up an interesting question. So, like, Joe, how is this movie different than you remember it being? Because um, now you've now you've gotten an interesting you've gotten to you got to see a lot of these movies when you're a kid. And then for your most recent research, you kind of binge watched a bunch of them yeah. again. When you were when you were rewatching a lot of of these movies and then now this one that you've gotten to rewatch for the first mm. time how are they different than you remember from being a kid i don't think i understood the uh the misogyny in them i think that's the the big thing that stands out to me uh how and and how obviously that must have influenced me in some way because i idolized these these films Hmm. i didn't i really sticks out to me how oppressed women are and how women are represented i think when i was what do i remember about them as a child i just remember them being like impossible and yet achievable Mm -hmm. so i could be judy garland you know, I, I could be her. She's the every girl. I identify with her. And if I do what she does and if I behave the way she does, then my life can be full of this magical realism as well. And I could do something which would, you know, go beyond the realms of possibility for for a few moments. You know, mm-hmm. it, it I, I think it resonates to me in a kind of escapism, but very gentle... Uh, I saw myself in it. 
Did you I, find yourself yeah. making the, the... I feel like the interesting thing about Judy, the way Judy Garland talks is no matter what it is, the last syllable of every sentence or clause, she, like, really stresses. Like, oh, dear, I cannot wait to go home and see your mother. <laughs> she kind of wants to, like, make sure that she hits you with the last line of every sentence. You know, like, she's very excited about all this stuff. You know, like, She's got a wonderful way of speaking. Uh-huh. It's very Judy Garland, actually. Oh, I mean, yeah, no, I have actually... You... Nothing compares to her. She is so specific, and she is so herself. Like, have you ever seen someone and thought, oh, that girl looks like so much like Judy Garland? Mm. She's so unique, and she's Mm. so unique in the way she sounds and the way she presents herself. I understand how she became this, you know, this thing that couldn't really be um, emulated. Yes, although even even now, watching back, the thing that I noticed about her performance during this film did you guys what notice her eyes mm-hmm. she was kind of bugging her eyes mm-hmm. a lot and anytime she did that i had busby berkeley in my head mm. you know saying look beyond the camera judy you know you didn't uh. hit your mark judy and i so i just had him in in my head and with her on all of these opioids yeah <laughs> so let me tell you a little thing about judy garland during the filming Lay it on me. oh it's messed up do you know the diet she was on no so they thought she was a fatty, uh, and oh her, nick- her nickname was the Hunchback. Uh, and oh, so she was put on a special diet, and she was only allowed black coffee and chicken soup, plus 80 cigarettes a day, and pills every four hours to stop her hunger pangs. What? 80 cigarettes a day? Yeah. And hunger suppression pills. Yeah, but so uppers and downers. So mm-hmm. to stay awake, so to give her that kind of manic energy that they needed for these scenes. Is all the coffee. Yeah, the studio yeah. made her an addict. And, and then downers to make her sleep at night. Jesus. Mickey was on them too. I mean, you can tell. Well, you can tell. Uh, like, there's a moment, there's a moment especially here at the end, where I wrote down, everyone is just fast shouting at each other. Yeah. <laughs> like... And it's not as bad in the beginning of the movie, but as the movie starts cresting towards the end and and Jimmy's band wins the whole thing, there are several scenes where it's just a whole lot of, oh my God, Judy, I've got to do this, and then we'll go in there, and we'll totally win the competition. Like, they're all just shouting at each other, and I'm like, slow the fuck down, please. But they're doing that to create this kind of false energy uh, on on the screen, you know, to keep the momentum up, and I can just imagine Bub- Busby Berkeley, like, you know, just hammering at them, getting needing. We need energy. We need drama. Blah blah blah. Uh, anyway, the fu- so, and this brings us to so the final, the sort of final, like little act that happens is surprise, surprise. They they get all the money that they need, and they get to go to the competition. Uh, unfortunately, little Willie, 13 year old, has broken his arm during their insane melodrama from earlier in the movie, and they need to get him to Chicago right away so that he can be worked on by a proper doctor, and it's going to cost conveniently $200. And of course, just because we have to really nail home what a good guy Jimmy is, he's like, I've got the money, let's get him on that train. Plane. Plane. Or a plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A plane. Let's get him on that plane. Because it was an emergency. Because yeah. he broke his arm and the kid didn't tell anyone for a week. Yeah. And the best part is the doctor says, if this kid does not get operated on in the next few hours, I cannot be responsible for him. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what does that mean? fucking arm. 
arm. I mean, does that mean, like, I mean, does it mean I'm going to have to amputate his arm or that he's got, like, sepsis and is going to just yeah. die? I don't know. I have no idea what that means. Well, it's because I don't know, we, don't, we don't die from broken limbs these yeah. days. So um, he decides not to go. Uh, they send they send Jimmy off in the plane. I mean, sorry. They send uh, Willie off in the plane. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's his face? Uh, Railroad magnate. Railroad dad. magnate dad is like, oh, y'all are good boys. I'm gonna send you to Chicago on my. I have the two hundred dollars all along. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he he just throws them. He's like, if you have forty five minutes, get on the train. And then suddenly they cut to the entire town around the train. Uh, there's with banners. There's banners and flyers. There's a brass band playing. Like, how are there two brass bands in town and they're excited for the other band to go? <laughs> right. Like, what the fuck? And there's just like no, there's no belief left. And then here's the here's a little thing that I found very funny. They finally get to Chicago. It's the climax of the movie, and we don't see any of the bands play at all. No. no. So we've been leading up to this big band competition where Paul Whiteman's like, I'm gonna have the four best high school bands play it out. I'm gonna let the audience decide. And they do like a medley of just like showing the names of the bands and then showing some of the random white boys playing in the bands and some of the random white girls that are singing in the glee clubs with the bands. And so we see 30 second montage of that and then he's like, well, Jimmy, you won. Here's your big (laughs) trophy. And then it's like, now we will ask members of all four bands to play in one big medley number that's going to go on for the final 15 minutes of the movie and is going to have at least 17 costume changes. And now they're They've practiced for months in advance. Let's start. And then we have that, and uh, Mickey and Judy never kiss. The only woman that Mickey kisses is his mother. Right on, on the, the mouth. Lips. Right on the mouth. Right smack on the mouth. Yeah. Well, Judy does give him a little peck on the cheek. Yeah. But that's because you know it's very wholesome, and they're yeah. you know they're not married yet, so you know they couldn't have anything so, more than holding hands. Joe, why, why does Judy love Mickey? He's such an asshole. Oh, that's interesting. I actually don't think he's an asshole per se. He's, he's such an asshole to her. I think her. he's daft. He, yeah, he he's oblivious to yeah. her affections, and that's supposed to make him cheeky charming, you know. And I'm not gonna lie, as a 13 year old girl, it did make him cheeky charming. And also, you fall in love with the boys that don't want you. And you also fall in love with the boys that are the talented ones and the the ones with a lot of personality. And the ones that are driven and focused on something you else. Haven't yet figured out what makes a good partner that being said i mean she could do so much better oh than yeah him. oh yeah. certainly but but again she's we're led oh. to think that the girl falling in love and pining with the guy like that's the ideal for her that's her character's projection mm-hmm. is you know where where does her character conclusion come that she gets the guy sort of through, yeah. through song, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But what's his what's his character projection? Oh well, he's going to be a successful band leader. That's going to make his artistic statement on the world. Right. But the girl gets the guy. Right. Yeah, this this is part of the problem. You know, mm-hmm. the 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 sight sights aren't high enough for the female characters. The sights aren't existent for the female. Yeah, characters. especially considering that like Judy's singing voice is on display the whole movie. She is every bit as talented as any other member of the band. And uh, and it's interesting that, like, I guess theoretically, because the band won and got all this attention, that maybe now Judy's character will get some sort of attention as a singer. But it's only in the shadow of, you know, it's a Jimmy and his band. Yeah, no, and, and there's never any conversation about her trajectory, period. No. 
This is what I was saying before we watched the film, um, if I can tie a link back to, to, to that, is that it always seems to be Mickey Rooney's story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's always kind of the subplot. And even though at least she's got a plot, at least she's got some kind of character projection, it is always based around him. And I don't think I ever realized that until this watching of it. Mm. Because here's the thing that balances the scales for a person that isn't really paying much attention to that. She's a better actress. She's a better performer. Mm-hmm. She is a commanding presence in a way he is not. Mm-hmm. And so for my entire life, even though these were Mickey movies and she was the... Uh, she girl was Friday. Kind of, yeah, mm-hmm. the kind of... Manic Pixie Dream Girl. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl in a way. Yeah, the proto Manic Pixie Dream Girl. I always saw these as her movies because she's such a, sh- a scene stealer. Mm. And she's such an effortless scene stealer. She's not even necessarily too much of a ham. I mean, the thing is that I thought was interesting was here we have a, you know, this is like a teen romance movie. And yet neither Mickey nor Judy are particularly um, like high, sexy or beautiful the way that like, like we would like a movie nowadays. This would be like, you know, like a Zac Efron, Vanessa Hudgens vehicle where they're their physical attractiveness is way played up. Whereas in this, like, he's kind of, like, goofy, and she's, like, she's very cute, but she's not, you know you know what I mean? Like, they don't, I mean, I guess this also, it's important that this is, like, the sign of the times, this is 1940s, like, we're yeah. not going to tart up a 17-year-old Judy Garland, but it's, like, I appreciate the fact that, like, it wasn't like, oh, she's so beautiful. Well, they it's... did try and tart her up. There was some definite cleavage action going on there. Oh, in the in the you Congo know. scene. Yeah. Oh, there was a and there was a lot of stuff. Um, but, but then they also do something which I is supposed to be innocent, but now looking back on it, I think it's it's a little bit weird. This this whole storyline that that followed Judy Garland of the I'm nobody's baby kind of you know Mm -hmm. nobody loves me I'm the ugly duckling I'm an in-between uh you know this was she had so many songs like this in this movie I think uh the song that she sung was I ain't got nobody and nobody's got me Mm -hmm. um and that it's just so typical of a Judy Garland character that she's she's considered kind of the tomboy, the girl next door that is not beautiful enough mm-hmm. to get the person that she loves. So the blonde um, Barbara Francis is her competition because she's beautiful, whereas Judy Garland is is homely mm-hmm. uh, but talented and can sing. She's got the personality. Right. Nowadays, they would totally have put glasses on her and, like, messed up her yes. hair. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So... Do you think you would show this movie to your own child? It's a really interesting question. Um, You know what I think I would show to my kid? What? I think I would show specific numbers. Not necessarily any from this movie. Like, none of them, upon revisiting, are really like, ooh, yeah, I really want to... Except that melodrama. Oh, that melodrama was awesome, and I would show that to anyone. Like, I kind of just—I highly cut recommend that I, out I, I'm and sh- put it on YouTube. I'm sure it's, it's probably fantastic. on YouTube. If you can look up the we melodrama might give musical, give a link to it. Um, but I think it is very interesting—the pervasiveness of the messaging around how romance is supposed to work, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the kind of icky feeling I get in the back of my mouth wondering how much this affected me. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't. Well, for that very reason, I don't think I'd show any yeah. children this film. Yeah. Um, which is odd because it was created to be this sweet, innocent thing, and now we look yeah. back and go, "Oh, this is awful." Yeah. You know, it. It just. It's. I don't know all the subtle messaging that's in there, which actually and is I not think, so subtle. Is I think actually not something for children. The subtle messaging is actually in many ways for children more dangerous than yes. this. It normalizes you can't put it. your finger on it until it's too late. Yeah, it, yeah. it normalizes the yeah. oppression of women and it yeah. normalizes the fact that <laughs> there is only white faces yeah. in this film, yeah. which yeah. is so strange. Yeah, it begs the question, I wonder what sort of movies that we think are kind of... Uh, that are coming out like relatively recently that we think are innocuous now, but get, take it like 80 years from now. Will people be going, Oh guys, do you remember Alvin and the Chipmunks, the squeak Gosh, <laughs> how offensive. Can well, I- Marshall, we will find out when our grandkids do the Wait, third, the, the third, third incarnation of, of do, do I still, I still love, love it? it? And they just, well, you know, tune in in just 80 years for <laughs> do I still love it? Alvin and the Chipmunks, the squeak straight from your neural net. Well, I guess that brings us to our title question. Do I still love it? Joe Hartstone. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no. I th- I'm really glad I did actually didn't review this uh, film for my research because it just made me a bit angry. Mm-hmm. Like, it just, it's, it's so blind to... So much. So many things. (laughs) And it propagates so many bad societal norms. Um, And I liked the songs in it. I loved Judy Garland in it. I think Mickey Rooney is a special kind of guy. Uh, I think Busby Berkeley is some kind of weird genius. But I don't think it stands the test of time. Would you say then, given your... Uh, given your research, though, that the the rest of Judy Garland's uh, catalog is worth rechecking out oh, to abs- the young Judy. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Fans? I mean, but don't just watch them in isolation. Read more, or come and see my show. You know, and and absorb yourself in the time period, and you know, learn about where we are right now because of the nostalgia of the past. Mm-hmm. So I would, I definitely recommend, I'd recommend the era, just maybe not this particular film. Yeah. <laughs> Laura Weiss. Yeah, it's really interesting. No, this movie, this movie sucked, <laughs> but I'm okay with that. And it somehow did not affect my, it did not, like, it's interesting. My, my view on how sucky this movie was does not make me feel ashamed for my young self, which sometimes in the past, when we've watched movies that I had loved in the past, I do feel ashamed for my young self. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel like I've got to give my young self a hug and be like, that you got something out of this when you were 13, and mm. I understand why. Mm-hmm. But I'm really glad that you see now that it sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also did not at all affect my deep, deep love for Judy Garland. No, no, mine. Yeah. yeah. Mm. She's still a babe. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh Absolutely. What she still woman. blows this entire movie out of the water, like yeah, completely. Yeah. she's still she's still a scene stealer every time yeah. she's on on the screen. Yeah, well, I had never seen this one when I was a kid, but now comparing it to like another old, like more classic style movie that we had reviewed on here, like Mary Poppins, I can say that this definitely was lacking a lot of the charm that made Mary Poppins just a lot of fun because there's something and a lot of the cool. creativity to be honest. There's something like yeah, there's something 
like boundless and and at the same time quaint about Mary Poppins that here felt here here just felt kind of like it was plodding along and not really making any points or getting really anywhere fast. So the kind of the fluffiness of it, I think also hurt it for me on a first viewing because I just kept waiting for something about it to be compelling, but it was so not even really, there's not even really a conflict, you know what I mean? I like, it, like uh, to jump in on you a little bit, I know this is your yeah, yeah, no, no. of it, but there was so much time wasted that it felt like they were just filling in time because they knew they had to sell yeah, exactly. a certain period of time to all the movie theaters around America in order like to it make better money. better be two hours. Better not be any exactly. less than two hours. We got a lot of popcorn to sell. Because they want people to go in. They want to have an intermission at some point so that they can go out and buy more things and spend more money. And, and then you just got to churn it, churn it out and churn it out. So I felt that there was a lot of indulgence allowed in this film because of that factory formula. Well, that about does it for the Mickey and Judy movie, Strike Up the Band. I really want to thank our special guest, Joanne Hartstone, who will be appearing in the Hollywood Fringe here in Los Angeles, California. Uh, please come out and see her at the Lounge Theater on June 3rd, 9th, 10th, 16th, 17th, 18th, and 20th. Uh, you can go online at thehollywoodfringe.org and look for... The girl who dropped the girl who jumped off the Hollywood sign. It's uh, selection four six five two. Thanks very much. And you'll you will get to see a lot of you singing, right? Yeah, it's a musical. It's a well, no, it's a play with music. Ah, yeah, very very much like the MGM musicals of the period that we just watched. It's uh, it's mostly mostly play, but a spattering of musical numbers. And it's starring only you and your only talents me. and voice. Only me, and and I channel a little bit of Judy in it, so you can come and hear me sound like Judy Garland. Well, fantastic. We will have links up on our uh, up on our website and our Facebook page, our Twitter and stuff, where you can go and check out and get tickets to come see Joe's show. Uh, we're gonna definitely check it out, and. Uh, yeah, where if uh, people want to follow you, because I know you're going to be touring around the world, putting mm-hmm. on more shows. Do you have an online presence they can go check you out? Yeah, I've got um, a web page, which uh, I'm still building, but it's joanneheartstone.com. Um, or you can, can contact me on Twitter. I'm at Joanne Hartstone. I must be the only one in the world because I got the, I got the one. Very nice name. Uh, yeah, or I'm on Instagram, down, yeah. Joanne Hartstone, H-A-R-T-S-T-O-N-E. Great. Yeah. So you're just like us. We're Do I Still Love It all over everything. We're the only Do I Still Love It in town. So if you send stuff to Do I Still Love It on pretty much any website, you'll probably get us. So check us out. Please make sure to check us out on the Google Play Store and on the iTunes Store. Rate and review and share the show with a friend or family member and, uh, you know, other people who like sitting around and thinking about, hey, you guys remember that movie that goes, you know, da, 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 strike up the band? No, no one else remembered this movie. <laughs> which is why I'm, I'm still shocked this movie even happened, which is fucking fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you, Joanne Hearthstone, for thank Do you. I Still Love It? I'm Marshall James. And I'm Laura Weiss. Saying uh, goodnight. This has been a Thank you.